Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at sovereignhope.church. That's sovereignhope.church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to come and humble ourselves under your word. Your word, which is powerful, profound, and mighty, that accomplishes far more than we can ever ask or think. And so, Jesus, as we come here, the majority of us in here, doing so weekly for months and years and even decades on end, what we trifle with is no ordinary means of grace, but it is the power of God unto salvation. So, we ask, Lord, that you work mighty works through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this Easter season, we are continuing to work through uh, the book of Luke. And I joked with our elders, why are we doing this? It's because we make fun of people who come on Christmas and Easter only, and then we preach the same sermon to them every year. We're like, come on back for another 51 times. It'll be great. And so we want to show them we could preach diversely Christ from all of scripture. Amen. So that's what we're going to do today uh, in Luke. So we're going to do next week. And uh, we today are in a portion of Luke, Luke 12, which Johnny just read, where Jesus begins to address anxiety. And on Palm Sunday, I think this is a powerful, providential work of God. I didn't plan it uh, for this simple reason. Palm Sunday is the day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy, uh, which we saw in the book of Matthew, uh, calling back to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9, that God's anointed king would come into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. Jesus arrived to much, albeit misunderstood, fanfare from the crowds. But in the midst of all of this palm branch throwing and Hosanna heralding, the weight of the cross sat on the burden of Jesus. In this diversity of experiences, Jesus knew the weight of sinful humanity. In fact, very later on, or uh, in a couple weeks, in the same chapter of Luke, Jesus says this about the cross. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Anxiety is something our world loves to talk about. Your neighbor, your favorite podcast, and your TV shows love to counsel you on it. But when Jesus speaks about anxiety, he does not do so as some foreign, detached God removed from reality. Jesus is the greatest apologetic of the Christian faith. As God, fully divine, in the flesh, fully human, he knew the burden of life in a broken and busy world. He knows the effect it has on our frame, for he too, like us, was made physical. Now, when I spoke on anxiety from the book of Isaiah this past fall, I said that one of the worst pieces of advice you can give to someone who is anxious is to say, don't be anxious. But if you paid attention to what was just read for us, that's actually what Jesus does twice. In verse 29, he says, do not be anxious. Or verse 22, he says, do not be anxious. In verse 29, he says, do not be worried. So is Jesus a bad counselor? Is Jesus unable to realistically engage in our emotions in a real sense? Absolutely not. And that's what this text goes to show. But I'm going to give us two reasons why when we hear Jesus begin to speak to us saying, do not be anxious, that we should listen here. 
And the first is because Jesus being God himself, Lord and maker of heaven and earth, sustainer of our flesh, infinite, endless, and eternal, he can command us to do whatever he wants. He can command us to do things that no one else can because he is capable of things no one else is capable of. We might say, well, I can't tell myself to not worry, but can you command people to love? No, but I would hope that if you're a parent with kids, you say you need to love your siblings. And guess what Jesus does? He commands us to love. Jesus tells us what to do with our hearts because he empowers us to do something with our hearts. Jesus commands us to love or to not be anxious because he is the ruler. He helps us do things which seem impossible by human standards. That's the kind of wonderful lordship Jesus has over even our emotions where we might feel trapped, paralyzed, and unable to do anything, but the one who commands us is also the one who helps us. Secondly, there's a beautiful story in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, and in it, Christian, who's the main character, is on this journey to the celestial city. He is labored, he is weary, he is burdened as he walks through the wilderness, and up ahead, he sees this beautiful castle of refuge, this pit stop of relief. But between him and that pit stop, on this narrow path, are two lions, real lions, not Aslan lions, hungry, angry lions, stationed on either side. And as he travels with many travelers, many see these lions, and due to the anxiety of what might happen of too many Discovery Channel documentaries, they turn back. They, they reject the offer of hope. But Christian, knowing that this was the path that Christ called him on, he walks that path, and the lions lunge at him. But you know what happens? The lions are on chains. They cannot reach him. He is safe on the path that God has called him. Why do I share this story? Because it's not poor counsel to say, do not be afraid of the lions when you know the lions are on chains. The response, do not be afraid, is rooted in the reality that they cannot reach you. Jesus shows his power as Lord of heaven by commanding us through the power of the Holy Spirit to not be anxious, but he shows his care for us in this text by revealing the realities behind our fear and how in the providential compassion of God the Father, he holds the chains of everything we fear. They can do nothing apart from God's sovereign care. It's as if Jesus says to us, go on. It's not as dangerous as you think. The threats are real, but the protection is sound. And this is what Jesus is going to do for us today in Luke 12. This morning, we're going to see five responses and five realities for worldly anxiety. Five responses that reveal five realities in regards to worldly anxiety. That's five commands and five comforts for those who wrestle with anxiety over worldly things. Now, this passage doesn't include all the Bible has to say about anxiety. If you're one who wrestles with that or is helping somebody with that, I would suggest you to maybe view our sermon from September 11th, which is a fuller treatment of that according to scripture. But given what Jesus is doing today, it is good for us. And so let's dive in and look at Luke 12, verses 22 through 23. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So here's our first response and our first reality. The first response is, do not be anxious. What's the reality? For life is more. Do not be anxious for life is more. If you've been with us for the past four weeks, Jesus, in his road to Jerusalem, the road to Palm Sunday, the road to the cross, has been dealing with some fairly sensitive and weighty topics. He's talked about opposition to the cause of Christ. He's encountered rejection in his own messianic identity. He's predicted persecution for his disciples. He's promised judgment for all who miss him as the sign of salvation from God. And he warns of the dangers of covetousness and putting too much hope in the world. Most of those conversations were in the presence of the disciples, but directed at the crowds, the critics, and the skeptics. But here Jesus turns and he speaks to his disciples. They say, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a word specific for you today that maybe normalizes something in your life. That the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God in the flesh expects that even you as a follower of Jesus will wrestle with how to respond to anxieties in light of a broken and sinful world. You see, because of sin, anxiety is guaranteed. It will always be present. There will be things that make us anxious. That, that word anxious in the Greek, it just means intense care. And this care is sometimes good. I would hope that if you have nieces or nephews or children, that you have an intense care for them. If you have a spouse, you have an intense care. Paul actually uses this verb, merimanao, in 1 Corinthians 12, when he calls the church to, quote, take care, merimanao, the same word Jesus says, do not be anxious, to take care of one another. Sometimes intense care is good and needed. But what Jesus is speaking about here is a concern or a care that is unhealthy, out of place, or unreasonable. It doesn't take into account the realities. And instead, it's a consuming and controlling concern, which instead of leading us to God's providential care, causes us to turn to the world and to turn away from faith in God. As disciples of Jesus, we, like these disciples, have to constantly vet our own emotions in terms of what is safe and what is sinful, where we are called to endure trusting in God, and where this is a reasonably sinful thing that we must repent and return to trust in God. And we do this with the help of others. I've benefited much from the counsel of others in regards to my anxiety, but we do this first and foremost by vetting our experiences with the word of God which is what Jesus is doing for us in our text today. We must pay attention to Jesus's words regarding anxiety. And this is highlighted when he opens up with the word in verse 21, therefore. In other words, what Jesus is about to share regarding anxiety is only helpful when we understand the context of what precedes it. So look at this story that Stephen preached on last week in Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. And Jesus said to them, take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So pay attention there. One's life does not consist. That's a theme we'll see come up again today. 
And he told them a parable, saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, which there's already, there's the the first inkling of anxiety. He feels a need, even in excess, to comfort his soul. Even in the, the presence of all that is good, there's this itch in the back of his mind that something is still a threat. And so he begins to speak to his soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. What is he doing? He's trying to preach to his anxiety. Relax. Be merry. Drink. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus leading into this has just warned the crowds of two things. First, hope in worldly excess and worldly welfare is where welfare is foolish hope. Why? Because we see one who has those things and he is still anxious. But secondly, we see that worldly possessions not only fail to satisfy yourself in regards to the world, worldly possessions fail to satisfy your heart before God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are possessed, we are held by the God who holds the world. And that being held through faith by Jesus is of greater peace than you could ever possess in all the riches of the world. Being held by the creator is greater than all you could hold in your hands by anxious toil. Ultimately, unless you have peace with God, anxiety will always consume your life in one form or the other. Whether you realize it or not, it will drive you. And that's because much of our paranoia that we have is a lingering effect of the image of God. God created us to understand ourselves, not in terms of who we are autonomously in regards to ourselves or even who we are in relationship to one another. But if we're made in the image of God, we understand ourselves in light of what? God, the one in whose image we are made. We know in the back of our minds, Christian or non-Christian, that we have to reconcile ourselves somehow with something outside of us. There's a compelling need to feel safe, as we just saw in this text. Why? Because somehow, without being taught, we already have these categories of safety and of danger. We have a reality natural to us. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God is doing from beginning to end. We have to give care and to sometimes be concerned because we have to reconcile with the reality that we are not God and that someone else is. You see, our anxiety is the itch of eternity, which can only be scratched by the God who created us. And in light of this, Jesus, as that very God, says, do not be anxious. But notice what he says. Pay attention to his words. It's not a blank statement. He gives specifics. Do not be anxious about your life by worrying about what you eat 
Do not be anxious about your body by being anxious about what clothes you will wear. Jesus isn't simply saying, don't have any concerns for your life. He's not saying, be irresponsible. Instead, he's warning us of the objects we look to in order to comfort our concern, in order to bring peace to our anxiety, the physical provision of food and clothing. Jesus reveals the reality he's critiquing. If you look back at verse 23, what does he say? He says, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Life is more than what you're concerned about. It's funny, perhaps, how much those two thoughts dominate our lives. Maybe today it's already 1048 and you've got a little rumbly in your tumbly. My kids are probably consumed by that right now, as maybe you've realized if you've had kids in church. This is hungry time. How much of our desire to get a career, to go to school, is based off the desire to build larger fridges and bigger closets? to be well thought of by the cars we drive, the clothes we wear. But Jesus says, if you want to live, if you really care about your food, or if you really care about your body, food and clothing doesn't cut it. Can you imagine, if you're someone who wrestles with anxiety on a macro level, can you imagine if the only things you were concerned about in life were food and clothing? (laughs) But life is so much more than that, right? What about general health? What about your heart pumping blood? What about your nervous system that has to fire flawlessly and endlessly in order for you to continue to breathe and think and move? What about natural disasters? What about war? What about floods? What about cars breaking down? Life is so much bigger than you think. To only be anxious about food and clothing is a bit short-sighted, isn't it? There is so much more that wages war against your very vitality and life. I think Jesus here is actually beginning to press the gas pedal of panic a little bit. You're anxious, but not about enough. If you really care about your life, there's more to be anxious of. But then in that same phrase, he immediately begins to bring relief. Life is more than these things. If, going back to verse 21, we are rich toward God... We avoid the pitfalls of endless, infinite, fragile anxiety. There is more to life, dear church, than you could possibly do by the power of your work and even by the power of all of our collective work in your behalf. There is a spiritual reality out there and the whole of who we are is held up not only by the means of food and clothing, which seem natural, but by the sustaining providence of Jesus Christ. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 1:17 where he says this, and he that is Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds all of the more than you could ever be anxious about. He's beginning to show you that your anxiety is bigger than you think. You ought to have a God bigger than you think as well. If you think you're ultimately in control of this life, you're not anxious about enough. But if you worship a sovereign God who sustains and provides providentially, then you really can find some relief in a world that seems to be spinning outside of your control, but never outside of God's control. And this is where he goes next in verses 24 through 26. Consider the ravens. 
They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So here's our second response and reality. The response, consider the ravens. Look at the birds. The reality, God values us more. God values his people more. Uh, Something helpful here, as someone who wrestles with anxiety, this was striking to me as I read this passage in the Greek. When we use the word just in English, consider, it kind of comes as like passive suggestion. Like your doctor says, hey, did you consider maybe, you know, not drinking 18 cups of coffee a day? Yeah, I guess so. I consider that. But here in the Greek, this is an imperative. Jesus isn't offering you something like, hey, if, if this is bad, maybe go ahead and give this a go. He's saying, consider it. Set your mind to it. Think about it. And see, here's times where our anxious hearts often commandeer the whole of our bodies, and we begin, I saw a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, you can ask me later this week that says, when you tell somebody, that feeling when you tell somebody, uh, whatever you want, either's fine, where secretly you're worried about both either and then a secret third way. Like, we, we are just compounded with what we're anxious about. And Jesus says here, Stop, just think about something else. Think about this. Put your mind to the work of thinking about a bird, a raven. Now, for the Jews, the ravens were considered unclean birds according to the law. So the fact that Jesus is drawing their attention here highlights the often disregarded and forgotten birds that are everywhere. We see ravens and crows all the time. Kids in here, have you guys seen crows? I'm assuming big old black gnarly birds. What are they doing? Well, I found they're often doing one of two things. They're either eating or they're looking for something to eat on a wire. When we see them, they're they're waiting or else they're plucking at some pine cone. They're digging through a trash can or they're eating some dead animal. It would appear their appetite is insatiable. And yet they find their food. They don't have pantries. They don't visit the food bank. They're not like the rich man who is building a barn in order to store up for tomorrow what the Lord would provide today. They get it, they eat it, and they begin to look for more, and they are completely at peace with their existence. Despite their number, despite their minimal means, despite their constantly needy stomachs, God feeds them. Are not you of more value than the birds? We pay no attention to them. How many birds did you drive by on the way to church today? I have no idea, but God does. And God knows those birds. He feeds those birds daily as long as it is today. No food a raven eats across the globe this morning is given or provided by any giver or provider apart from God himself. And if God cares so meticulously for the unclean, outnumbered birds of the world, how much more for his elect disciples. And Jesus again presses the gas of, I think, trying to promote a little bit of helpful anxiety here. He says, if your anxiety can't add a single hour to your day, why do you worry about the rest? Unless you become Dr. Strange and can control time, your anxiety does nothing. 
You're powerless. You can't do anything. You're not anxious about enough. You're not powerful enough. Do not miss this warning. If a sovereign God is not trustworthy to you, you are not anxious about enough. Nothing will bring you peace. But if there is a sovereign God who has proven his care for us, not merely by feeding us, but by sending us his son to die in our place, to take the punishment for our sins, to be the resurrection and the life, then we can trust him. Because Easter Sunday comes next week, we can trust him. After the sermon, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together, which is where we remember that our provision, the greatest provision has already been given and given endlessly in Jesus Christ, who gives himself to his people and says, just as Moses fed his people with manna from the wilderness, I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me will never be hungry. You can satisfy yourself with all the wealth and goodness of the world, but to be empty of the bread of life in Jesus Christ has no effect on the itch of eternity and its anxious reality. Look at the ravens. God loves you more and has given you Jesus. He gives another sort of consideration again in verses 27 through 28. Consider the lilies. Lily, come on up here. Well, I was just kidding. You're good. Uh, uh, Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Here's our third response. Consider the lily. The reality behind it, God clothes us with more. Go and look at the flowers. We'll get them eventually, someday in Montana. We will have flowers again. And Jesus says, watch how they grow. How do they grow? Kids, if you came to our Easter thing yesterday, you went home with a little flower bed with seeds in it. My daughter sprayed them endlessly. And this morning we woke up and there was beautiful nothing. Nothing grew. Why? Because we know the crops grow slowly, steadily, into greater and greater beauty over time. Isn't this something which we as adults will laugh at when our kids water, thinking those seeds will grow right away, that we need to know when it comes in our own walk with Jesus? How often in life and in spiritual matters do we default into some sort of like hurricane energy, be like, am I beautiful yet? We're just doing, doing, doing. And we're so anxious and so frustrated when it seems difficult and hard. But these flowers, they draw energy from a source apart from themselves daily and slowly by the providence of God and a commitment to using the roots that God gave them. They become beautiful, purpose-filled flowers of the grace of God. We labor to look like we've made it in the world, spinning for promotions and toiling for houses, and we want it now. We repent of our sin today, but we're so disheartened and anxious when we realize frustration tomorrow, and we wonder if God could be real in the midst of it. But look at the flowers. Steady, slowly, by the power of God, he makes them beautiful. 
and then they get thrown into the furnace. How much more will God clothe his saints who have resurrected eternal life in eternity? If God so clothes the grass, which today is alive and tomorrow gone, how much more those who will stand in eternity before the Father? You see, clothes and nakedness for us maybe just communicates warmth, um, maybe communicates provision. But in this day, there was a, a, a deep sense of, I hope perhaps today, though it's still not lost, is a sense of shame. To be unclothed was to be debased, was to be shameful, was to be exposed. We all have in our hearts a desire to be comforted, a desire to not be ashamed, exposed, and vulnerable. We want to be seen as precious, meaningful, important, and established. But where does God grant us what we seek in all those anxieties? Well, first, what we've seen so far is in the modest furnishings of God's provision to have clothes, to have a bed to have a roof over your head, to have uh, food, even in a modest means, is to rejoice at God's provision to you. It is sufficient. The lily at the end of the day is just grass, but it's beautiful even in its modesty. Secondly, we find shameful, lavish beauty, embarrassing value, and enduring security in the clothing of Christ's righteousness for us. Look with me at Isaiah 61.10, where the prophet says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Where do you find the enduring beauty, sense of purpose and protection that you long for in the world? Only when we are robed in righteousness. A righteousness which cannot come from our own works or from your parents' work or from your church's work, but only in Christ because it's only in the work of the cross where righteousness is given to us. Where Jesus takes his beautiful clothing, clothing which covers, clothing which brings peace, clothing which hides our vulnerable bits, clothing which which covers our blemishes, and he wraps us in them because he gives them to us by faith. We don't need to worry about being decked out in the trappings of the world, for God will clothe his disciples in modest provision today but in lavish spiritual provision forever. And this is where Jesus draws our attention to next, the spiritual realities behind our physical anxieties. Verses 29 through 30. And do not seek what you are to drink, or what you are to eat, and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So here's our fourth response and reality. Jesus says, do not seek, or what's actually the, the, the better sense behind that word is do not strain. Do not strain. Why? Because we have something more. What Jesus says here is something pretty astounding. Pretty astounding that I'm sure you passively neglect it in your life. As I do too. Jesus says, do not seek what you are to eat 
or what you are to drink. That's pretty profound. Now, Jesus is not giving a sermon on responsibility here. That, the whole Bible speaks about that, about being responsible. But what he is curbing here is not responsible care, but a straining energy that seems to stem from faithlessness, not from faith. A grasping at straws, a trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. Now, you might say, in regards to food and clothing, what do you mean don't seek those things? We need those things. But think of it this way. If you were a parent and your child woke up every day in anxious fear of if there was going to be food on their table and safety in their home, would you find that to be a healthy anxiety? Is that something you would want them to live in every day? No. We'd want them to trust us. Even in situations in the world where those are the present reality, a good parent would say, I want to eliminate that. I want to promise you that I can care for you. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's making a distinction between how his disciples view the pressing realities of the world and how the world itself views them. He says, the world seeks after these things. The nations, this daily physical sustenance is behind everything they do. The Greek word for nations are just ethnos. It's different peoples. It's perhaps in your Bible translation translated pagans. The whole world, the whole godless world, the whole Gentile world seeks after these things. There is no greater motivation. Why? Because they see no greater reality. This is the sum of life to them. And again, you might say, yes, it's because we need them. How could we have been any, be of any earthly good if we don't actually have life? But this is where we cannot miss what Jesus is doing. Let's pay attention to how Jesus comforts us. Don't assume we know what he's saying. And said, look at what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. Look again, verses 29 and 30. And do not seek what you are to drink and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Don't strive. Don't worry. Don't faithlessly seek, O you of little things, that the primary things in life will match and be met with the physical demands only of the world. Why? Why do we strive not only after physical things? Because your Father knows you need them. God cares more than you care. He created us. God didn't create Adam and Eve and put them in this garden with all this food And around like noon on the first day, Adam's tummy rumbled and God's like, what was that? You're hungry? You're not supposed to be hungry. He created us to be hungry. Who made the first clothes in scripture? God did out of his mercy to cover Adam's nakedness. God knows your needs. He knows the brokenness of sin. He's not surprised that that same sin often blinds us to the simple reality that God cares about your life more than you care about your life. He knows what you need in order to serve him and be satisfied. And the implication is that he is going to meet those things. God seeks these things for us. He cares about these things. The ravens know it. The lilies know it. And yet Christ has not come to save a raven or a lily, but he's come to save his sheep. Do you know it?
Food matters. Clothing matters. God made us physical and spiritual. Paul warns us that if you want to eat, you've got to work. There is right responsibility here. We're not to sit and do nothing. But because God cares for physical earthly needs in our life, it frees us to focus on something else. I want my children to not get up and have to worry about gas bills and electric bills and the the breakfast that's going to be on their table. Why? Because I want to focus them to focus on learning and growing and loving. Many of us cannot focus on what God has called us to do to strive for the kingdom because we're so focused on physical things instead of realizing God's saying, I got this. I got it. Do something more. Dream bigger. Think larger. Work in weightier ways. Or as Jesus puts it, Seek the kingdom. This is what we see in verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom. That's the father's kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. Why? Because you notice it. What do you say? The world seeks after all these things. But what happens here? All these things, same words, will be added to you if you find his kingdom. This is our last point this morning. The reality, seek, or the response, seek the kingdom. The reality, because we get even more. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means if your primary motivation in life is to secure for yourself salvation and satisfaction in your own life, you're going to miss everything. You'll have nothing at the end. You'll be like the rich man in the passage before this who has barns full of storehouses of food, but he's dead and he can't even enjoy them. And he dies that to eternal damnation on account of his sins. And so too will all who do not have Jesus Christ. You can spend your anxious toil in life towards these things and never get the relief you hope to find. Many of us know what this is like, whether you say you're an anxious person or not. This is an anxiety that bends not towards God's provision, not towards God's word, but away from it. When anxiety begins to grip us, we turn towards things that do not care for you like the Father cares for you. We turn to the world who has no idea what we need when there's a Father who knows what you need. But there is a Father who cares. There is a Father who gives. And if you seek his kingdom, then you will get everything. Now, Does this mean that in seeking the kingdom, you get all the wealth and riches and health and happiness you've ever wanted as the world sees it? Yes and no. We need to be careful. So we're, we're on a section of scripture where Jesus is talking about rewards in heaven. The prosperity gospel is a real thing. It is a false gospel. This is exactly what Jesus is after. But do not so divorce yourself from God as giver and the reward of the gospel to think that God gives no benefit in a worldly sense to those who follow him. God seeks to reward those who seek him. He is promising here that you can trust even in our frailty, the modest provision of God. God wants us to seek him because he cares for us. What's promised is not food and clothing and extravagance, but it's what Jesus has already taught us in his prayer earlier on in Luke. Give us this day our daily bread. What is promised is meager, daily, reliant provision. It's not excess. It's not barns full of tomorrow's food, but faith for today's. And for the Christian, 
committed to following Jesus as our first priority. Jesus speaks generally here. Generally, I want to make that clear. Generally here, that he will take care of those daily physical needs. But it's actually in those instances where God doesn't provide, where through unfortunate circumstances or persecutions, we actually lose the life the world says is the goal, that yes, we actually get the riches, the hope, the pleasure, and the growth we always wanted, and we get it in Jesus and in glory. Look at what Paul says about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. And notice he's speaking here about what we have presently and what we will have in the future that is in glory. In him we have an inheritance. Now to have an inheritance is to have something what? Have something guaranteed now, but to be redeemed later. Now listen to the language here. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory of God. What does eternity hold for the believer? What does the kingdom hold? The riches of provision for us in Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Things we will not be able to number. You won't build big enough barns for what God gives you there. You won't have more health than what God gives you there. You won't have more happiness for you will be infinitely present in the, pl- in the, the place of Christ Jesus without sin to enjoy him forever and ever without end. In the face of an anxious world, there is an indestructible and untouchable peace only in this kingdom. Seek that kingdom. And all those things will be added to you. So what does it look like to seek the kingdom? That's a big thing. That's, that's the takeaway here. This is what Jesus is laboring for. Seek it. Right? Notice that's different than simply consider it. Seek it. If you want to be free from anxiety, seek it. If you want to fight well with anxiety, seek it. So what does it look like to seek this kingdom? Three quick points of application. First, come to the king. Come to the king. We cannot get into the kingdom of God. We cannot see the kingdom of God without seeing Jesus as the king and the only way in which we are brought into it. If you're not a believer in here today, I hope that your anxiety is helpful towards this end. You should be anxious about much. For there is an infinite burden of sin that stands between you and safety. But Christ has come. Your problem is bigger than you can manage. It is more than food and body. Each of us have sinned and no anxiety can fix that. But Christ has come. There's no better season to remind ourselves of this than this season. That Jesus who cares for us and clothes us in his righteousness has condescended to take on the distressed baptism of the cross. He does so that that we might be citizens of another kingdom, guaranteed of an inheritance that is yet to come, rooted in God's provision even for today. Come to the king and find his rest. Second, share the gospel of the kingdom. This might seem like an odd thing in light of our uh, seeking of, or our Jesus' words to anxiety, to seek the gospel of the kingdom. But if any of you ever 
uh, watched a documentary of people surviving in the woods or families wrestling in a third world country or someone who tries to go on a crazy fast and you walk past your fridge or look in your pantry, what's your typical reaction? I've got a lot. (laughs) I've got more than I thought. And when you are committed to sharing the eternal gospel to eternal souls who are destined apart from God's infinite grace to a life of eternal damnation, and you speak of Jesus' eternal sufficiency to cover up their sins, to bring them back to God, to give them eternal life of eternal praise and eternal provision, we find how small our anxieties really are because we are reminding ourselves that there is more to life. If you are an anxious person, start sharing the gospel and realize that the only provision we could have any hope in is the provision of God to us in Jesus Christ. And if we have that, brothers and sisters, we have the promise of peace. Be consumed with eternal realities and preach the only one who can save you from them. And lastly, long for the relief of the eternal kingdom. Long for the relief of the eternal kingdom. Many of us will still wrestle with hunger, with anxiety, with discomfort now as we follow Jesus, but we must learn to remind ourselves that this is not the kingdom. We are to seek it here. We are to long for it here. We are to seek to obey its principles here, but that still stands in front of us. That is the inheritance yet to be revealed when Christ comes back. And if you want to be certain of it, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. If you want to be certain of it, you must be vigilant to not allow worldly experiences and desires to cloud that hope in heaven. Keep the promise of heaven closer than the promise of the world. Because in that day, in that day, our bodies, our emotions, and everything else will be perfected. You see, death is the leash that holds all of our anxieties at bay. God's saints will walk the path of life safely and death will leash every fear and it will not enter the kingdom of God. There is our safety. So pray, pray to that end that the anxieties of your daily life might be weaponized for eternal hope, to take it to Jesus and say, I need to see you in the bigness of who you are because my anxiety seems bigger. Long for the kingdom, pray for the kingdom. Would you join me in doing that right now? Lord Jesus, we ask that you give us eyes to see the kingdom by giving us hearts that desperately seek it. Lord, we pray that we see you as the deep provision we need to make it through this world. And in so doing, we find peace with you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.